Good morning, everybody. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 11. We'll be there today. If you don't have a Bible, you can turn on your iPhone or your Android or your laptop. Or people bring all, all types of devices these days to church. Uh, John chapter 11, though. So the, the, the theme of our, uh, this series has been things that God uses to grow your faith. And the topic today is pivotal circumstances, what I would phrase differently uh, in the term of just trials in general. Uh, and we're going to look at a situation where Jesus is involved in the trial of people that are close to him that he loves. And we're going to look at some key aspects of this story and things that, that we can learn from this to help us through our time of difficulty. So let's get right into it. John chapter 11, we'll start in verse 1. We read that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, probably most of us are familiar with Mary and Martha. Uh, we, the, the story that we commonly think of would be the story where Jesus is in their house and Mary's at Jesus' feet and Martha is there busy uh, cooking up some carne asada or something. And, and so we think of that story, and we know that from the totality of Scripture in general, uh, from the Gospels primarily, uh, we know that Mary and Martha were close friends of Jesus. Jesus had different types of relationships with people. Of course, he went out and he ministered to people. Uh, but he also, you know, he has disciples as well, but he also would maintain close relationships with certain people. We read that there was a certain group of women that helped support him uh, and take care of his disciples. Uh, we know that Jesus wasn't out there working. He was out doing the ministry. And Mary and Martha, and apparently their brother Lazarus, uh, are one such group of people that Jesus had an extra special close relationship with. They were friends of Jesus. They were worshipers of Jesus. And so as we get into this story and we read about the trial that comes to their house, the first thing that we need to note is that walking with the Lord, being close to the Lord, being a worshiper of the Lord, it doesn't insulate you from difficulty. I think we all can acknowledge that, but I think what we have to do is just stop and realize, because I think sometimes maybe we act like there's certain protections and things like that, and there are, there's safeguards, and God protects us from a lot of things, but it doesn't insulate us from trials. In fact, Jesus told us in John 16, a promise of Jesus. He said, in the world, you're going to have tribulation. Peter tells us in his first epistle to not think that it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened. You know, when, when a difficulty comes your way or something happens in your life, so often, if you're like me, you can kind of think, what's going on? This is, this is crazy. You feel like your world's turned upside down. Peter says, expect it. Expect that. In Acts chapter 14, we read that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. You know, I think we could just look at the life of Jesus alone. The Son of God, perfect, blameless, gave his life, focused on others, and suffers the most painful death you could ever suffer. And he's innocent. That really is our history as Christians, and, and that is the same type of suffering is promised to us. Verse 3, we read that, Therefore, because Lazarus was sick, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. A few things to note from verse 3. 
I like the fact, and I think it's a good insight for us, that Jesus, uh, uh, the sisters appeal to Jesus based on his love for their brother. I like that. Because I think, again, if you're like me, your love is fickle, right? Sometimes you feel like you're on fire for the Lord, and sometimes you just aren't feeling it. You love the Lord, but you just don't have that feeling. Jesus is constant in his love. It says that he rests in his love for us. The other thing that I think is wisdom for us from this verse is that the sisters merely told Jesus the problem. They didn't tell him what to do. They just put the problem at his feet. And I think there's wisdom because so often we don't know what God is doing in our situation or what God wants to do. We don't see the third parties that are affected by our situation. We don't see um, all the plans of God in in the deal. And so if we're going to direct the Lord, I think it's okay if we tell him what what our hope is. But if we direct him, then we're kind of switching positions. We're kind of making us the master and him the servant. I think it's wisdom just to say, Lord, here's the problem. The story I think of is, um, I think it's, it's in the Old Testament, but it's in maybe 1 Kings, 2 Kings, where Hezekiah has the Assyrians come against the city of Jerusalem, and Sennacherib, who's the leader of, or the, the general of the Assyrians, sends a nasty letter to uh, to the Israelites and basically tells them everything that they're going to do. The Assyrians were wicked people, wicked people, and they were known for being brutal to their captives. And he sends the letter to Hezekiah. And in fact, they first they read the letter, uh, Sennacherib does, has the letter read to all of the Israelites on, on the wall there. So everybody hears what they're going to do to them as they've surrounded the city. And it says that Hezekiah went into the temple and he just laid the letter before the Lord. And I like that because I think, again, it's, it's the same theme as we see here, just setting the problem before the Lord. Whatever he wants to do, let him handle it however he sees best. But we don't take control of the situation. We let him handle it. It also needs to be noted here in verse 3 that the word love that's used uh, in the text, of course, inspired by the Spirit, the word, the word for love here that's used is the Greek word phileo. And there was four different Greek words that you could use for love. Um, The word phileo describes sort of a brotherly love. Philadelphia, phileo, where we get that. Um, But it basically means that Jesus, it it speaks of a fondness, of a liking. And that's kind of cool that that word is used there because, you know, we know that Jesus loves us, but maybe sometimes we think that, you know, he loves us, like we're told to love our enemies, but, you know, sometimes we think Jesus is maybe a little agitated with us or, you know, he's seen all of our failures this week, and he's kind of like, seriously, this, per, you, know, th- you know, Dustin again, like you're dealing with that. But it says that Jesus was fond of Lazarus. And I like that because Jesus is fond of us. He likes us. He enjoys being with us. It's not this begrudging thing like, you know, the Father sent me to die, and so I just died for these miserable people. But it's, it's a fondness, and Jesus is fond of Lazarus. Verse 4. When Jesus heard that, that Lazarus was sick, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, this is, this is an important verse for us because this describes for us and tells us an important lesson for us in our difficulties and in our trials and tragedies. Jesus teaches, first and foremost, that our difficulties are for the glory of God. 
Now, at first blush, this seems a little unfair, right? We think that God should be in heaven. He loves me. Obviously, I know I'm his child. He should be obsessed with my comfortability, right? He should be focused on making things easy for me and helping me. But the, as I was studying this, I kept coming back to the, the lesson in my own life where, you know, my kids want things that I know it's not good for them, you know? Um, there's a reason why you limit your sugar intake, honey. Or there's a reason why daddy won't let you cross the street by yourself. To them, this is terrible. You know, World War III, like this is the worst thing that's ever happened. But see, father knows best, doesn't he? Father sees everything, and father knows what's going on. So if we step back for a second, we realize really the fact that our tragedy, our difficulty is for the glory of God, it's actually very fair, really. And, and let's look at a few scriptures that, that exemplify that. Read, first of all, in Revelation chapter 4, John is taken to heaven and he sees this heavenly scene before the throne room of God. And apparently in heaven, there's 24 elders that are before the throne and they sing, it says, night and day, constantly singing this song to the Lord. And they sing, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and for your pleasure, they are and were created. You see, we were created for God's pleasure. I so often think it was kind of the other way around where God should be focused on my pleasure at this point. But I have to stop and remember, there's the spiritual truth. I'm created for God's pleasure. Jeremiah was struggling with this concept because he was told that the Babylonians who were wicked, wicked people, a pagan nation, they wanted nothing to do with God. In fact, they worship false gods. But yet God told Jeremiah, I'm sending the Babylonians to take my people captive uh, into Babylon. Jeremiah was just so blown away by this because he just couldn't grasp how God would deliver his children into the hands of, of pagans. So God said, Jeremiah, do this. Go down to the potter's house, and when you get down there, I'm going to speak to you. So Jeremiah says, I went down to the potter's house. And it says that I, Jeremiah says, I saw that the potter was making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he was making was clay, and it was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it into another vessel. So the potter's sitting there with his wheel, and he's marring, and he's, he's shaping the vessel. And it says, and this is key for us, it says that the, the potter did that as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel." And in Isaiah, Isaiah was given a similar analogy. Speaking through Isaiah to the children of Israel, God said, Shall the clay say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? You see, whatever is going on in your life, whatever has taken place, however you look, wherever you work, whatever you're doing, your family members, all of that is designed by God as best as the potter sees, as the potter sees best. We're the clay. You know, that, that uh, I don't think it's a hymn, but that old classic church song, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. I am the potter, you are the clay. Mold me and make me after, after your will. While I am waiting, yielded and still. I mean, that really, if you just boil that down and you live that way, how much simpler life would be. If you just said, whatever happens, Lord, you're the potter, I'm the clay, let it be done unto me. And I think we see that in the life of Jesus there in the garden, don't we? where Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. 
But that's not the only thing God does. He's doing it for our benefit. He causes, he allows trials into our lives to bless us. Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And maybe this describes your life. Paul says, we're hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not in despair. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our flesh. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us. So death works in us, but life in you, blessing others. Paul says, therefore, we don't lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is only for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So Paul tells us that God's doing things in us for eternity. Now, I don't know exactly how long eternity is. I'm told it's a long time. Uh, but the reality is that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be disappointed. You're not going to get to heaven and say, Lord, why'd you make me go through that? I don't know everything that God's doing in your life. We can't see it ourselves. You probably can't see it in your own life. But the reality is that God is working in you, as Paul says, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've gone through things where, you know, later on, I see how God has used that experience for his glory and to bless me. It says in Revelation chapter 19 that they sing to the Lord, true and righteous are your judgments. So in heaven, where everything is perfect, there's perfect knowledge, Paul said in heaven. In, in heaven where there's perfect knowledge, we will sing, true and righteous are his judgments. We're not going to say, Lord, you did most things right, but you blew it when you let me go through that. Or Lord, this wasn't fair. I, I, I can't say that I understand how that all works together, but we know that when we get to heaven, that will be the reality. I think when I was last uh, with you guys, I mentioned from A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis, where Lewis writes in this concept after his wife uh, passed away from cancer, and he writes that in heaven, it's not that all the inconsistencies of life, that God's a God of love, but he allows us to go through pain, or God is a compassionate God, but he allows us to suffer. Lewis said, it's not that there's going to be inconsistencies that are resolved. In other words, it's not like, oh, okay, I see now how that, was, how that wasn't inconsistent. Lewis says, and kind of in a philosophical way, he said, when we get to heaven, we're going to see that there never really was a problem to begin with. It was just in our own reality. And remember, God tells Isaiah, he said to Isaiah, he said, Isaiah, don't even try to figure out my ways because my ways are so much higher than your ways and my thoughts are not your thoughts. So God, God has told us it's, it's beyond our understanding. And that's why in Philippians, Paul says that God promises a peace that surpasses understanding. So often I'm looking for the understanding, but that's, that's aiming low. Aim high, say, I don't need to understand it because I do. 
I understand that God's working in me both eternally and uh, for others around me as well. Moving on with our story, verse 5, we read that Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Now, verse 6, it's a puzzling verse to me. Jesus finds out there's a need, and he waits. Doesn't just wait one day. He waits two days. We'll find out later. This is only a two-mile journey from where Jesus was at, but yet he waits. You know, we need to realize that God's timing isn't our timing. I've heard it said that God is seldom early, but he's never late. And I think sometimes we mistake God's silence as either indifference or we mistake his inaction as the fact that maybe he just doesn't care, but that is not so. There's a verse in the Bible where the Lord says, I'm going to wait so I can be gracious to you. He said that to the children of Israel. And again, we don't see everything that God's doing. We don't see every angle. You don't see what's going to happen in 10 years, in 15 years. We just don't know. The Bible, and that's why the Bible puts a premium on waiting on the Lord. And let me just read for you some verses that emphasize the necessity to wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage. Isaiah 8, 17, I will wait on the Lord. Isaiah 30, 18, blessed are those who wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40, those that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they will not faint. Lamentations 3, it's good that one should hope and wait quietly for the Lord. Zephaniah 3, therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up. You see, and that's why God told us in Psalm 46:10, he said, be still and know that I am God. In the modern vernacular, the Lord's saying, relax, I've got it covered. It's hard to do when we want answers. It's hard to do when we want to know, why did this have to happen like this at this time? But again, understanding is never promised, so we can't ever look for that. The story I think of from the Old Testament is uh, the story of, of Joseph, where if you recall, Joseph sold into slavery. He goes down into Egypt. He's in Potiphar's house. He's falsely accused. He's put in prison for many years. And there's Jacob, the father, one of the fathers of, of faith, right? One of the fathers of the Jewish nation. And Jacob is a mess because Jacob, he's, he's a mess when he finds out that Joseph, he thought, was dead. Then they take Benjamin down because Joseph says, bring Benjamin and so they bring uh, Benjamin down to, to Egypt, and then Joseph keeps Benjamin. And uh, Jacob, when he finds out that Benjamin was kept, Benjamin was his precious son. And when he finds out that he thinks now Joseph's dead and Benjamin's in prison and they're going to kill Benjamin, Jacob just kind of throws his hands up and says, all these things are against me. But little did he know, no, Joseph isn't dead. In fact, he's second in command, and Benjamin's going to be okay. See, when we look at the situation, when we, when we look at it and say, this is not good, we're not looking at it with eyes of faith. And God wants to grow our faith by bringing us through trial and tribulation to prepare us for what's next so that our faith increases. Let me read for you briefly from uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. 
where Peter talks about that the genuineness of our faith, which is much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, he says that God wants that it's found to be praise, to, to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, God is working in us through our situation, and God is preparing you for what he has for you. Continuing on in verse 7, we read that after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he won't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. The disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. But Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Verse 14, then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Now it's interesting because Jesus likens death to sleep. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians says the same thing. He says that the Christian doesn't die. No, the believer in Christ simply falls asleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I don't know about you guys, but I love sleep. We don't need to fear death. We don't need to worry about what that's like. Spurgeon said that when we come to our, our deathbed, we'll have dying grace meaning you don't have the grace for now, but when you get there, you'll have it. Because when we die, we simply fall asleep and we're ushered into eternity. Thomason said, verse 16, let us go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met with him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he'll rise in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. So this is an amazing interaction here between Jesus and Martha. Verse 25 may be one of the most powerful verses in the scripture, if not one of the most powerful things that anybody has ever said. Think about that. Jesus is claiming to be the resurrection and the life. You know, we, we think of uh, the Mormons or we think of the Jehovah's Witnesses who, who try to belittle Jesus, make him an angel or a created being, right? Jesus is claiming here to be fully God. Only God could claim to be the resurrection and the life, right? What Jesus is saying there, that he is the eternal. 
And Jesus uses the phrase, I am. That's one of the great I am sayings of Jesus. Of course, he made several of them, right? Seven of them to be exact. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life, so on and so forth. But we've got to catch what Jesus is saying here. Because Martha, in her time of need, is bringing her need to the Lord, and Jesus is responding with, I am. What is he saying? Well, if you think back to uh, Genesis, where, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy, where Moses is there before uh, the Lord, and the Lord appears to Moses in the burning bush, and he tells Moses that his name is, I am that I am where we get the, the, the name of Yahweh, of God. Uh, but that phrase there, when you boil that down to its basic meaning, it's I am means the all-becoming one. And what Jesus is saying is he's saying, he becomes to us whatever we need in our moment of need. If you need encouragement, he becomes your encouragement. If you need hope, he becomes your hope. If you need resurrection, he becomes your resurrection. If you need assistance, he becomes your assistance. He's the all-becoming one. And individually, he becomes to us whatever we need. That's an important point that Jesus is, is explaining to Mar uh, Martha. But the second thing that Jesus does, and, the, and it's a lesson for us in our difficulty, is Jesus points her back to heaven. He focuses her attention not only on himself, but then back to heaven, because heaven is where everything is resolved. Heaven is our hope. In John 14, the disciples were extremely distraught because Jesus had told them, I'm leaving and I'm going away and where I'm going, you can't come. And they said, Lord, we don't know where you're going and how can we, how can we go there uh, if we don't even know the way? But Jesus told them that he's going to prepare a place for them. And if he goes to prepare a place for them, he's going to come again. So Jesus doesn't give them, you know, doesn't give them good psychology when they're distressed. He says, no, focus on heaven. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that's what he does here with Martha. Verse 28, we read that when Martha had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary. She said, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up and went out, followed her, saying, She's going to the tomb to weep. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now I want us to focus on the fact and, and notice that Mary, her interaction is different than Martha. You see, Martha, uh, you know, seemingly, Martha exhibited greater faith. Martha said, Lord, I know that if you even pray right now, that God could raise him from the dead. But Mary doesn't do that. Mary just says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I think, first of all, we need to realize that if we think back to the story of Mary and Martha when Jesus is in the house, and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet worshiping Jesus, and Martha is in the house, um, you know, with her tasks, trying to make the house nice and clean for Jesus, they're two different people. But notice that the two different responses or approaches to Jesus yield the same response. And I think the important thing to recognize is that there's no special formula in coming to Christ. There's no magic words. 
In fact, we read that in Romans that even when we speak words that are, aren't even uttered, you know, groanings that can't be uttered, it says that the Spirit makes intercession for us. And the reason is that Jesus knows our hearts. He sees our hearts. It's not magic words. It's the heart. And so I'm comforted by that because even though Martha and Mary had different approaches, I'm reminded that it's all about, it's really about my approach. It's all about me coming to Christ speaking to him the way that I know how to, and having that relationship with him. Different people have different approaches, but each approach yields the same result. Verse 33, we read that when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. This word groaned, it's really exhibiting or explaining a, a deep uh, groaning or, or sadness in the bowels. It's the way that the Greeks would explain the deepest amount of, of sorrow. And Jesus is showing his humanity here, the fact that he's so distraught. Now, Jesus, we got to notice this because Jesus is not distraught because Lazarus died. He knows he's about to heal him. Remember, he said uh, way back in the beginning of chapter 11 that the sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. He knew he was going to heal Lazarus, but Jesus is touched, I think, by a couple things. One, he's touched by human suffering. You know, it is so good to know that when we're upset that Jesus is right there. He's not this kind of this airy-fairy God up in the clouds that really can't, can't relate to us. In fact, we read in Hebrews that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us, but in all points was tested as we are, yet without sin. We also read of Jesus that he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You see, Jesus allowed himself to be touched by human suffering. And I think if we're going to be the church and we're going to be, you know, in a sense, the hands and feet of Jesus, I mean, we have that, that call to an extent, obviously, but we've got to be able to be touched with other people's suffering. We have to be ones who are willing to get involved in the messiness of people's lives. Jesus was, and he's willing to get involved in our lives and our suffering. Verse 34, Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. So Jesus wept. Again, just Jesus is extremely moved by this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. I think the second reason that Jesus is weeping here is because Jesus revealing his deity. We saw his humanity, but now revealing his deity, Jesus is weeping because he sees the effect of sin. God didn't create sin. The wages of sin is death. I'm sorry, God did not create death. Death is a natural result of sin. That's why we all die. And Jesus, seeing here that when he created Adam and Eve and put them in the garden. This was never his intention for this type of sorrow. And he's touched by that. He's probably a little frustrated by that. And he's dealing with those emotions outwardly and openly. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. And it was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha said, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead for four days. But Jesus said to her, did not I say that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Now notice, Jesus equates the command and obeying the command with faith. He says that 
Martha, if you just roll away the stone, your brother will come forth. And I think so often for us in our trial, as we look to the Lord, God doesn't give us a laundry list of things to do. So often, I know in my own life, God will just give me one simple thing, just one simple command. If you think to Jeremiah 18, God told Jeremiah, remember, he said, go to the potter's house, then I'll speak to you. And maybe you're going through a time where, quite frankly, it's, it's hard to even get out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, I, I recall just a time in my own life where, you know, it's, when you go through deep suffering, it's just, you know, simple things is even like tying your shoes, you know, something as simple as that. It's just kind of like, you just feel like you can't, you can't go on. Jesus would call us just to listen to him and just do what he says. He knows what he's going to do later on. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And all he's calling Martha to do is roll away the stone. Keep it simple. Just obey what the Lord's called you to do. Leave the rest of the details to him. And just obey. As, as we, we sing the song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And if you do that, you can just, you'll experience, I think, I've experienced my own life, just this deep peace, just obeying those simple commands, one foot in front of the other as you just trudge along, and year after year after year, you'll see the situation improves. It gets better. And then to close out our story here, verse 41, they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that, you, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. Uh, one commentator said that Jesus had to specify Lazarus because if Jesus just said, come forth, all of the dead in the cemetery would have resurrected. So we notice here, and I want to leave you with this, when Jesus prays, good things happen. I've heard it said that everything will be all right in the end, and if it's not all right, it's not the end. We read in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Now think about this. Realize this today. Jesus, our Lord, is sitting down next to God the Father, and he's praying for you. He's not just praying, Lord, just bless my church and help my church. He's praying for you specifically by name, and he's focused on you. His child, he's He's well aware, even as we think with our own children. You know, when your children are little, you know what they need. You know what they like. You know what they don't like. You know everything about them. And we're earthly fathers, right? Earthly parents. How much more God, who it says he knows every hair on our head. God is concerned. Maybe he's been silent, but it's not indifference. And how do we know that? Is he proved it on the cross. Look at the cross. And what did he tell Thomas when Thomas, who was doubting the reality, he appeared to Thomas and he said, look at Thomas, look at this. 
behold my hands and my feet. And whenever we forget that God is concerned with our situation specifically, you need to look at Jesus and you need to look at the hands and the feet that went to the cross for you specifically, to die specifically for your sins so that you specifically could be in heaven with him. And right now, Jesus is praying for you. And I, I, I love the fact that he's sitting. Why is he sitting? Because he's not stressed out. You know, the person pacing the room, that's the picture of a person that's stressed out, right? But Jesus is sitting. He's relaxed. It's probably like a lazy boy chair. And he's just relaxed. And he's talking to the Father. And he knows that you're going to make it. And he knows that he's going to get us there. Because he knows the end from the beginning. So we can rest in that this morning. And so, Lord, we just, we thank you for that reality. And we thank you that this morning we can just cast our cares on you, for you care for us. And Lord, I pray for anyone here, for all of those here, that, that Lord, they have a burden, that they're going through a trial, that they're going through a difficulty. It seems unfair. It doesn't seem right. But Lord, we know that in the end, we are all going to be resurrected and taken to you. And Lord, just encourage us through this story, and I pray that just these lessons that we look at today, that you would just really cement them on our heart and, and just help them be at the forefront of our minds this week as we go about your work. In Jesus' name, amen.